0: Good morning, church. My name is uh, Will Duvall. I'm the lead pastor here at West Hills. And uh, it's so great to have so many of you with us this morning, Um, especially so many visitors. I met uh, quite a few visitors already this morning. So thank you all, especially for being here. And just a reminder as the offering plates go around, your presence is gift enough uh, with us this morning. I don't feel compelled uh, to give. We would like to just give to you, as Thad already said. Got a gift for you at the info bar waiting. If, if you just give us your contact info, uh, that'll be enough. Um, this morning, uh, we're celebrating the second Sunday of Advent. And um, Advent means coming, as in the coming birth of our Savior Jesus, whose incarnation we anticipate and celebrate together each year uh, during these four Sundays of Advent leading up to Christmas. And um, I'll just go ahead and put in a, a plug here as well, as that kind of alluded to, you know, uh, this season, this uh, in Christmas in particular, I think is is a time when people are more apt, more likely to, to come to church, come back to church, maybe, as it were. And so I just put a special plug in and, and, and encourage you, uh, exhort you, challenge you to be inviting uh, your own friends um, to come and visit with us uh, and, and be with us during this season, and in particular on Christmas Eve for that uh, candlelight service, such a beautiful uh, service we celebrate together. But, but this morning's Advent theme is hope. Uh, hope is what we're talking about this morning. Hope is undoubtedly one of the most powerful words in the entire English language. Uh, as Andy Dufresne put it, hope is a good thing. Maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. If you haven't seen uh, the Shawshank Redemption, you need to. Uh, Andy Dufresne is wrongfully convicted of murdering his wife and sentenced to life in prison, and I don't want to ruin the ending for you, um, and so I'll let uh, his best friend Morgan Freeman do it. Um, As he narrates at the end of the film, Andy came to Shawshank Prison in early 1947, and in 1966, 19 years later, he escaped. All they found of him was a muddy set of prison clothes, a bar of soap, and an old rock hammer worn down to the nub. I remember thinking it would take a man 600 years to tunnel through the wall with it. Old Andy did it in less than 20. In prison, a man will do most anything to keep his mind occupied. And that's what the film is all about, hope and he escaped Shawshank by refusing to let his hope die. Perhaps you've heard interviews bridging from the fiction to nonfiction now with survivors of the Holocaust who recall the single most decisive determining factor between who persevered and eventually was liberated from the concentration camps of Nazi Germany and those who didn't make it out was whether or not they clung to their hope, kept hope alive? Did they lose their will to live and give up, or did they continue to believe against all odds in the hope of freedom one day? And this morning I want to ask us a very simple yet profound question, maybe the most important question uh, you'll be asked this Advent season, maybe your entire life, and that is this. What is your hope? Where? Is your hope? Where do you find? Where do you, where do you place your hope? And the main idea, the, the goal of this message this morning is to get us to see that we have hope in Christ. We have hope in Christ. In fact, we only have hope in Christ. Our only hope in life and in death is the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me try and prove that to you this morning with a little activity. Let's play um, a game of of finish the sentence, okay? So I'm going to start a phrase. I'm going to let you finish it. Uh, Just shout out your answers out loud. We're all going to do it so you don't have to be embarrassed. Everybody else is going to answer as well. All right, don't be shy. Finish this sentence for me, okay? I really hope that, your turn, I really hope that, okay, so, so, so give me some of, give me some of your answers, I I heard Chiefs will win the Super Bowl, the Chiefs lose the Super Bowl, what else, my kids come to Christ, what else, what was that, More That we learn to tolerate one another. What else do you hope for? Healing of, and Healing of sick family, friends. Good, we could go on and on and on. Those are good. Uh, here, are, here are a few others that I came up with this week as I was preparing for this message. It's just trying to guess some of the answers y'all might give, kind of honest answers, uncensored answers if it wasn't your pastor asking, and we weren't in church. I really hope that President Trump gets impeached, or I really hope that he gets reelected in 2020. It's kind of the Chiefs thing; we go both ways on that. I really hope that my family gets snowed in and can't make it for Christmas this year. Anybody be so honest this morning as to admit that? I really, uh, really hope my husband will help out around the house this afternoon instead of watching football all day. I really hope my wife likes the Peloton that I got her for Christmas. (laughs) Don't do it, brother. Don't do it. I hope my kids take a nap today so I can take one. I hope the Blues repeat their Stanley Cup victory in 2020. I hope I get a Christmas bonus this year. I really hope he'll get on with the sermon so we can get, get out before noon this week. Now, here's how I know That our only hope in this life, and certainly in death, is Christ Jesus. Because all those other hopes will ultimately fail you. They will. What are you going to do when the Chiefs don't win the Super Bowl, or they do win the Super Bowl, or your friends don't get well in this lifetime? your hope is in politics? Where do you turn when your candidate doesn't get elected? If your hope's in your family, your spouse, your kids, anyone never been let down by their family, your spouse is batting a, a thousand. Anyone's kids never let you down. That's funny. You should, you should laugh. But how many parents these days place so much of their hope and their kids in, this, in an unfair soul way. If your three-year-old sinful child is your Messiah, don't be surprised when you feel hopeless and let down when he inevitably does let you down and implodes under the weight of that burden you're putting on him. Your sports team can't win every game, every championship. If you live long enough, you will one day lose your job. You can't take your money with you when you die. And don't ever bet on my sermons being short. Everything you hope for in this world not only can, but eventually will one day fail you, except for Jesus. That's why hope is the most powerful apologetic for Christianity today. When we asked in our 2020 uh, church survey, what kinds of topics would you be interested in studying together in the new year? Many of you said uh, apologetics and evangelism. I'd like you to help me Learn to share my faith better. Well, I'll give you the 10-second crash course this morning. Just ask the unbelievers in your life, where is your hope? That's a simple question. Just ask, and then listen, and then help them see that any answer they offer other than Jesus will ultimately let them down. Brothers and sisters, we have hope, blessed hope. In our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. and In our passage for this morning from Romans 15, the Apostle Paul is going to outline five reasons specifically that we can hope in Christ. And so, would you stand with me as you're able, out of respect for the reading of God's Word, from Romans 15, verses 3 and 4, and then uh, verses 8 through 13. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. So may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the hope that we have in it and in you. And most of all, in your Son, Christ Jesus. It's in his hope-filled, powerful, glorious name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So the first reason that we can hope in Christ is because we have hope in his salvation. Verse 3. Now the context of chapter 15 here is that Paul is writing to the church in Rome, a church of mostly Gentiles. They're struggling to remain unified Jews and Gentiles, in selfless Christian love. And so Paul exhorts them in verses 1 and 2 don't seek to please yourselves, but rather let each of you please his neighbor, verse 2, for his good, to build him up. Because, as he reminds them in verse 3, Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Paul says, Jesus of all people had the right as the perfect, sinless Son of God. He had every excuse to seek his own personal happiness during his lifetime at the expense of others, to look around at the rest of us, broken sin- sinners surrounding him on every side, and say, forget you guys. I'm looking out for myself, but as we heard Jesus himself remind his disciples time and time again in our study together through the Gospel of Mark this past year, he said, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And it it is Christ's life-giving ransom, his payment for the spiritual debt that you and I rightfully owed God by virtue of our sin That was not only the greatest example of selfless service that the world has ever known, but it is ultimately the foundation and the bedrock of our hope, our eternal hope in Christ. It's the hope of the gospel. The gospel, the good news of Jesus and the salvation that he offers us. As Paul articulates the gospel elsewhere in Romans chapter 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You want help sharing your faith? Just read someone Romans 3:23 through 25. It's really quite simple. If you can remember these four phrases outlined in Romans 3, then you can share the gospel with anyone. Number 1, God is holy. He's perfect. Romans 3:23, the glory of God, he's glorious. Psalm 145, 3, God is worthy of all praise, and yet, secondly, we are sinful. All have sinned, we hear in verse 23, and fallen short of that glory of God. God created us to bring him glory, but in our sin, our selfishness, our self servingness, our desire to be God's unto ourselves, We have fallen short of our created purpose and our God-given mandate to bring glory to God alone. And the Bible calls that sin and the wages of sin. What sin earns us, we hear in Romans 6, 23, is death. Eternal death, separation from a holy, perfect God. And yet, number three, Jesus is Savior and sacrifice. Verse 23, we are justified, made right. By God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. How? How did Jesus redeem us, literally buy us back from sin and hell and death and Satan, the enemy, the God of this world, who had legal right to our souls by virtue of our sinful rejection of God? Verse 25, he did it by being put forward by God as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation means the act of appeasing someone's wrath. Wrath? I thought this was good news. Whose wrath? God's wrath. Romans 1.28, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God, in his holiness, rightfully hates our sin. But Jesus propitiates... He appeases, he satisfies God's righteous anger. How? Verse 25, by his blood. Propitiation by his blood. His blood. Why his blood? Because Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. What? What? Shedding of blood. This is getting into some really Old Testament barbaric stuff. I mean, can't we, as enlightened modern people, believe in the good news of Jesus without all this icky blood stuff? No, we can't. Scripture is perfectly clear without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Why? Why? Because Leviticus 17.11, the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. See, you and I owe God our lives our whole lives, our whole hearts and minds and souls and strength, all of us, but we consistently offer him less than that, less than all of us. On a daily basis, that's what sin is, offering God less than your whole self. Sin isn't just the bad stuff we do. It's the good things that we leave undone, failing to, leave, to offer all of ourselves back to the Lord in worship and sacrifice. And so in the Old Testament, God devised, a sacrificial system of atoning for, of paying for this life debt that we incur, the gap between the life that we owe God and the life that we actually offer him. And we do it on the altar with the blood of animals. Their life in your place, we call it substitutionary atonement. Their life for yours. Israel proved in the Old Testament that the problem with the sacrificial system is that there aren't enough bulls and goats in the world to cover over and make up for all of our sinfulness. We are so thoroughly screwed up. And so God sent one more sacrifice, a once and for all sacrifice. Hebrews 9, 25, 26. The high priest repeatedly entered the high holy places every year with blood not his own but Christ has now appeared once and for all to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself so that's it you're telling me Jesus paid it all all to him I owe I don't have to do anything to earn my own salvation yes and no Number four, faith is required. Faith. You have to surrender. Jesus paid it all, all to him you do owe. You owe him your whole life, offered back in sacrifice and surrender to him. You've got to surrender. Stop trying to earn your own salvation. If you count stopping as doing something, then yes, you have to do something. Mark one fifteen, repent and believe. Confess that you're a sinner in need of a Savior and believe that Jesus is that Savior. Back to Romans 3, 24, 25. We are justified freely by his grace as a gift which must be received by faith. The greatest gift in the world still has to be open, friends. This gift analogy is especially apropos here at Christmas. Can you imagine getting the biggest gift presumably greatest gift you have ever been given under the tree this Christmas and refusing to open it, dragging it back to your bedroom closet, stuffing it in there, opening the closet door once a week on Sunday for an hour just to sort of admire it. Maybe you even join a club where you get together on Wednesday nights for an additional two hours a week to talk about how great the gift is, but you've never actually opened it. Friends, you can understand the truth of the gospel in your mind, but fail in your heart to put your faith and your trust and your hope. That's what we're talking about this morning, putting all your hope in Jesus, all your eggs in one basket, going all in for Jesus. The one who bore all our sin and our guilt, and our shame, our reproach. Paul says the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. He's quoting there the Messianic prophecy from Psalm 69.9. Reproach is defined as blame or criticism conveyed in disapproval. That's, that's a great description of sin, isn't it? Eve disapproved of God's prohibition against eating the apple. And then when God confronted Adam about it, What did he do? He blamed God. The woman who you gave me told me to eat. It's your fault, God. Sin is basically just telling God that our way is better than his. It's disapproving of God's way, reproaching him. And yet, Paul tells us in verse 3 here that our reproach of God rightfully earns us God's reproach, his confronting us in our sin, and yet, what does he do instead? Instead perfect mercy and perfect justice held together on the cross, God made a way for the reproach that was owed you and me to fall on Jesus instead. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And if you will but call on the name of Jesus this morning, friends, repent of your sin and trust in his precious blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins, you will be saved. You can have hope in Christ's salvation today. Number two, we have hope in Christ's word. Verse four, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now that is a shocking statement. Paul just claimed that whatever was written in former days, he's talking about the Old Testament, Through the encouragement of the scriptures, he says. The New Testament is still being written. Paul is doing that as we speak. Scripture for him was the Old Testament. He claimed that everything written from Genesis to Malachi was written for our instruction that we might have hope. It was written to teach you and I to be hopeful. Now, if that doesn't blow your mind, you have never read the Old Testament our leader in training groups here at the church right now. We just got done reading through the New Testament together this past year. In January, we're starting the Old Testament. And here is Paul's litmus test for whether or not you have accurately understood any passage, any passage of the Old Testament. Does it increase your hope? The nine entire chapters that begin First Chronicles of genealogies, he begat him who begat him who... Nine chapters of begatting. If that doesn't increase your hope, you haven't understood it. The laments of lamentations of one-third of the Psalms, 16, all 16 prophets in the Old Testament, they're just mourning Israel's sin, God's rejection and coming judgment and destruction. If that doesn't increase your hope, you haven't understood it. Do they bring you hope? Paul says they should. That's what they're written for. I cited Leviticus earlier. I will tell you, there are few books of the Bible when rightly understood that should bring us more hope than Leviticus. When you begin to grasp the magnitude of your sin because you read what used to have to happen in order to bring a person back into right relationship with God after they had sinned. And you just sit there and imagine how many animals you and I would have to slaughter every day of our lives just to be able to maintain any semblance of a relationship with a holy, perfect God. Then you begin to feel the weight and the glory of what Christ has done for you. Hebrews 10 Every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same old sacrifices, which can never take away sins, not permanently, not in any sort of lasting way. But when Christ had offered once and for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That is good news, friends. That is hope. But you won't get it if you don't get Leviticus. You won't get it if you don't understand the law and the prophets and Old Testament history and poetry and wisdom literature. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped, For every good work. All scripture, brothers and sisters, breathed out by God so that you and I might be complete. That means that if there are parts of scripture that you haven't read, that you haven't understood, that you haven't internalized, that you haven't gotten down into your soul, then you aren't a complete person. You aren't the person that God has designed you to be. We're so quick to run to all the wrong places looking for hope and completion, aren't we? Looking to our spouses to complete us. It's not their job. Looking to our occupations to complete us. It's not what they were designed for. Our possessions to make us feel whole and satisfied. The Bible says you will be complete, lacking in nothing, when you get God's word down in your heart. Friends, you cannot believe that this Bible it's really the word of God. His literal word breathed out by God and let it collect dust on your shelf. You can't. And I get it. Maybe you're thinking, okay, Pastor, not all of us get paid to read the Bible for a living. That's why I come here. Right? I come here so that you can help get God's word down in my heart. And that is my job. And I'll keep doing it as long as you'll let me and the Lord will let me. But listen, you've got to recognize that the Sunday morning worship experience will never be enough for you. It is important. It's important that you're here on Sundays. But if you are relying on Sunday mornings to be the sum total of your exposure to God's Word all week long, It's a problem. Don't relegate your exposure to God's Word to 40 minutes a week. And under my teaching, nonetheless, listen, there are far too many good Bible teachers out there. I, even if I didn't get paid to do this, I wouldn't just relegate my teaching to Will DeVall's teaching. There are far too many good teachers out there. Listen to them. Listen to Piper and MacArthur and Keller and Chandler and Platt and DeYoung and Begg and Hughes and Chapel and the Wilson, Sandy and Andrew. Those are my teachers. Who are yours? Find good teachers, find good commentaries, study it for yourselves, but do not substitute the milk for the meat. You understand that? Don't substitute someone else's digested regurgitation of their time spent in God's word for your own. Get in the word. You want more hope in your life? You want to have more hope in 2020? Commit to spending time in God's word every single day. And just watch how God uses the endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures. They're written to encourage us to bring you hope. Number three, we have hope in Christ's covenant fidelity. Covenant fidelity. Just a fancy way of saying that God is faithful to his promises. We skip ahead now to verse 8, Romans 15. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. See, first century Jews like Paul Thought of everyone in one of two camps, either a Jew, an heir of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs, God's chosen people to whom he had made promises all throughout the Old Testament, or you were a Gentile, other, non Jew. And Paul's going to explain in verses uh, 9 through 12 that Jesus came for both, but he starts in verse 8 here with the Jews. He says, Jesus became a servant, the suffering servant, prophesied by Isaiah to the circumcised, that's to the Jews, to prove God's covenant fidelity, his faithfulness to his promises. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. What promises? Well, since I already uh, mentioned Isaiah, for sake of time, let's just focus on the prophet Isaiah this morning and his prophecies alone about the coming Messiah chapter 7 verse 14 of Isaiah, the Lord himself will give to you a sign, behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah 9 2 through 7, he will be a light to all nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of uh, deep darkness, on them a light has shone. For unto us a child is born And to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah 11, 1 and 2, there shall come forth from a shoot from the stump of Jesse, that's was King David's father, Jesse, of the tribe of Judah, from whence Jesus came. And a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And in God's Spirit, then we hear, that he would perform miracles. Isaiah 35, the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. And then uh, then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And what are they going to sing? What are they declaring? Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon him. Because the Lord has appointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. That Messiah who proclaims all that would be preceded, Isaiah 43, by a prophetic forerunner who would preach a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And the Messiah would make straight The path of the Lord, even as a humble, suffering servant. Isaiah 42 Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. And yet, he would be rejected and beaten. Isaiah 56, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. And ultimately, he would be killed as a sacrifice for our sins. Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by none All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. My servant shall make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities, because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered among the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. It's the Old Testament. And through his substitutionary atoning death, prophesied 700 years earlier, on our behalf, this Messiah will bring salvation to all people, Jew and Gentile. Isaiah 49, verse six. To raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel, I will also make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth the Jews, and the Gentiles. And friends, that is all just one book. That's just Isaiah. You got 38 other books in the Old Testament all waiting for you, all pointing ahead to the same thing, all looking forward in hopeful anticipation to the same person, Jesus Christ, God's great and definitive yes to all his promises. And for all of us here this morning who aren't Jewish, it's the overwhelming majority of us, I suspect. Number four, we are doubly undeserving of salvation because not only are we hopeless sinners, just like the Jews, in need of unearned grace, but we're not even biological heirs of all these great promises we've just read from the Old Testament. We Gentiles had to be adopted into the family of God. We have hope in Christ's adoption of us into the family of God. As Paul said in verse 8, Christ came as a servant to the Jews to confirm promises given to their patriarchs. And most first century Jews expected the Messiah not only to, 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 to rescue his people, Israel, but also to judge everyone else, the Gentiles. That's what they were hoping for because they'd forgotten God's promises ones like we just read in Isaiah, that the Messiah would be a light for the nations so that his salvation might reach to the ends of the earth. They'd forgotten God's very first promise to them as a people, God's chosen people, God's choosing promise of Abram, the first patriarch, when he said, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. Why? So that you will be a blessing. The Israelites have been blessed to be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God's heart has always been for the nation, all the nations, to call unto himself a people of every nation, tribe, and tongue. That's why God chose Israel to be a light, to be a blessing to others, but they failed. They failed, and so what? God's plan failed? Choose Israel, bless Israel in order to reach all the nations? God has now given up on Israel, on his promises to them. God has simply chosen a new people instead, Christians. Romans 11, Paul says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. There is a remnant chosen by grace that through their trespasses, salvation might come to the Gentiles. And then Paul explains this using the agricultural metaphor of grafting new foreign branches onto a mature tree. That's a picture of how God used this, what he calls partial hardening, of Israel's heart against her long-awaited but overlooked Messiah, Jesus, in order to include all of us. Anyone not a Gentile here? The only reason you and I can be here and be included in the promise is because of Israel's rejection, this partial hardening. That's the kind of God we serve, a redemptive God who uses things like sin and rejection to accomplish his purposes and plans. He's that big and redemptive. Paul reminds us back in chapter 15, Christ came in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written in 2 Samuel twenty-two fifty. 50, therefore I praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said in Deuteronomy 32, 43, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, in Psalm 117:1, one, Praise the Lord all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says in chapter 11, the one we just read, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles in him, will the Gentiles have hope? And elsewhere, Paul further explains God's plan for including us using the metaphor of adoption. Adoption. Israel was God's biological child, heirs to the promise. We Gentiles had to be adopted into the spiritual family. And really... Israel had to be adopted in, too. They just got adopted 2,000 years before we did. You all know, Polly and I have been pursuing adoption for quite some time now. And if you're a a parent of your own biological children, you know that there's nothing in the world like watching your own natural-born biological children being born. It's one of those just transcendent, you can't even begin to try and describe it in words, moments in your life. But I have to believe there's something transcendent to you, nothing quite like standing in a courtroom and hearing the judge pronounce that you are now officially the parents of this new adopted child. And, And imagine being on the other side of that as a child old enough to kind of understand. A child maybe having been abused by your own biological parents bouncing around the foster care system for years before finally getting placed in a new loving family and hearing those words, you are now a child of these parents with all the rights and privileges that afford you. Friends, that's what Jesus has done for us. Ephesians 2, we were by nature children of wrath. We had a different father. (laughs) Father. father of lies, the God of this world, an abusive father, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ. Paul goes on, at one time you Gentiles were separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So that now, Romans 8, we have now received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, It's the only way that we can relate to God as a good and loving father and not as people who stand under his rightful condemnation and wrath that we read about earlier. It's by receiving the spirit of adoption as sons. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, every right and privilege that is afforded Jesus Christ as a biological son begotten of the Father, the only begotten Son of God the Father is now true of you, brothers and sisters, if you are an adopted child of God. Do you believe that? I mean, that, that is crazy. Every right and privilege that is afforded Jesus Christ by virtue of his Being begotten of God the Father, the biological son of God the Father, is now true of you. Every right and privilege true of you as an adopted child of God. That is hope. That is hope. And that is a perfect segue to our conclusion. Number five. Lastly, we have hope in Christ because of God's Holy Spirit. God's Spirit. Verse 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and all peace. Those are our next two weeks of Advent coming up. All joy and all peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Friends, how do we get hope? We get it from the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. And how do you get the indwelling presence of God's Holy Spirit in your heart? Paul says very simply, it comes in believing. 1 John four fifteen, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. There's so much more that could be said about this, should be said, will be said, and later sermons, specifically on the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I mean, there's just too much hope to be contained in one sermon here. But you want hope this Christmas season? You can have hope. There is hope in Christ. It's Colossians 1.27 Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ indwelling spirit in you. But you only get it. You can only be filled with all joy and peace and hope with the God of hope himself living in your heart, living there and sealing your eternal adoption into his heavenly family if you believe. So I ask you one last time this morning, friends, do you believe? Will you unwrap the gift and receive Jesus this Advent season? Let's pray.